Welcome to City Life Church, and this is our podcast. This is Pastor Dave Diefendorf, and we are so honored to have you join us today. Our passion is to help you discover who God is, grow in the likeness of Jesus, and lead well in this generation. I hope in this message, God will meet you where you're at and take you to the next level in your connection with Him and His kingdom. Enjoy the message. Can we say amen to that? Amen. (laughs) Thanks, guys. That was awesome. Great. Well, you guys here? A little warm, but I think it's going to cool down tomorrow, so it's going to be a good thing. Um, All right. Well, turn your, uh, if you have a Bible in front of you or on your phone, go to Matthew 16. That's where we're going to kind of camp out today. Good deal to cover. So we're in the middle of going through the Gospel of Matthew. And um, as we saw, as after Jesus announced and taught about the arrival of God's kingdom with the Sermon on the Mount, after we saw Him bring the kingdom in practical, displaying ways to day-to-day life among the people of Israel, we saw that Jesus was accepted by some, uh, He was neutral to others, and He was definitely rejected mainly by the religious leaders called the Pharisees. And so the big question is, is how is this conflict between Jesus and Israel leaders going to play itself out? And so the next large section that we're going to deal with is chapter 14 to 20. And um, we're going to explore all the different expectations people have about the Messiah. Jesus keeps healing people and twice even miraculously provides food. One time to Jewish people and then another time to actually a non-Jewish crowd. And this is a sign very similar to what Moses did in Israel in the wilderness. And so these people are excited about Jesus, not only for the all-you-can-eat buffets, but they think that he's actually a great prophet and maybe even the long-awaited Messiah. But not to the religious leaders. He was causing great consternation because he was upending their power structure. And their view view of Jesus, the religious leaders' view of Jesus, is built on passages like Psalm 2 and Daniel 2 about a victorious Messiah who would uh, deliver Israel and defeat the pagan oppressors. And from their point of view, Jesus is a false teacher. He's making blasphemous claims about himself. And so there are stories here about them increasing their opposition, hatching a plan to kill him. And so in response, Jesus withdraws And he begins teaching his closest disciples what it means for him to be Israel's Messiah because it's not what anybody expects. So let's pray. Father, I pray that, Lord, that you would open our eyes to who Jesus is. That God, even us, we have different expectations of who you are and what you're here to do. But God, I pray that you would set our mind on your word. God, the truth of your word. God, may we build our lives on your word and what it says about who Jesus is, what he came to do, and what he's here today to do in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start off with a little story. The Tibetan Buddhists believe in the transmigration of souls. When someone dies, they suppose that the soul of that person goes immediately into a different body the body of a child born at the exact same instance. This belief becomes vitally important when their spiritual leader, the Dalai Lama, dies. A search is made for a boy 
born at the moment when the great leader had died. That boy is taken away and brought up as a new leader. Everybody, including the person himself, knows from the very beginning that he is the new Dalai Lama. It sounds very strange to our Western ears. We prize highly the right for every person, the freedom of choice about their future. Even hereditary monarchs can abdicate, but the Dalai Lama has no choice and there is no question about who he is. In Judaism, it was very different. Many Jews in Jesus' day believed that God would send an anointed king who would be a spearhead of a movement that would free Israel from their oppressors and bring justice and peace. And this anointed king is what they called the Messiah. Some expected a warrior king that would that would purge the pagan hordes from the earth and be set up as a forever in the flesh king of the world. Some expected the Messiah would purge the temple and establish true worship. But everybody who believed in such a coming anointed king knew that he would fulfill Israel's scriptures and bring God's kingdom into being at last on earth as it is in heaven. And so Jesus takes his disciples on a little retreat, a two-day getaway north of where he usually traveled, two days up in Caesarea Philippi, as we'll get into here in a second, away from the crowds, and he dives into teaching them about himself and the true purpose of his calling by his heavenly Father. So Matthew 16, verse 13 through 20. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, You are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it, and I will give you keys, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. Whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Then he sternly warned the disciples, not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Wow. So Jesus asked his disciples almost two years, this is two years into walking with Jesus. They've heard his teaching. They've seen his miraculous works. And right here, Jesus begins to kind of turn towards Jerusalem. Who do people say the Son of Man is? In other words, who do people say the person right in front of you is? And the disciples' reaction tells us a good deal about how people perceived Jesus to be. Not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Not cozy and comfortable Jesus who loves little children. He's like rather one of the wild prophets or of recent and ancient times who stood and proclaimed God's word fearlessly against wicked and rebellious leaders. He was God's mouthpiece for injustice. But Peter sees something more, that Jesus is indeed 
the Son of the living God, the Messiah, the Christ. He is the true King that the Psalms and the prophets had spoken of. And Jesus turns and kind of builds Peter up a little bit. And, then, and he not only, he, he first, he changes his name. He was known as Simon before then. And some biblical scholars interpret Simon as being like wishy-washy, but he changed his name to the rock. And upon this rock, upon this revelation that Jesus is the Messiah, God was going to build his church. The temple in Jerusalem was a place where heaven and earth met. Jesus is declaring that he is reconstructing the centerpiece to God's world. He is going to build a community, and through their allegiance to him, they will become people through whom the living God will put the world to rights, bringing heaven to earth through forgiven and empowered people. And he says upon this revelation of the truth of Jesus, he would build, and this interesting word, we only find it twice, I believe, in the New Testament, this word ecclesia, church, we get interpreted. But it's interesting, that word ecclesia was actually a Greek term. Uh, and the Romans used it in their governing structure. The ecclesia were people within a certain city-state that were called out in order to manage through wisdom, in order to dispense justice. The ecclesia was actually a called-out people to rule over a people, over a community. And this ecclesia, even Jesus used um, Roman terminology a lot, even the word apostles, uh, it's interesting, the, the, the word apostles is actually was a special rank of general in the Roman army. And as Rome was expanding their expansion, and they would be coming back to Rome, they realized that the people that they had conquered weren't taking on Roman culture. That they had, they had still their own culture, even though they were now under the jurisdiction of Rome. And so as they were traveling back, they they, they saw that they weren't adopting Roman culture, and so Rome sent out a special a rank of generals that would go into these unculturized areas and culturize them to Roman ways. And so Jesus uses the same turn to his sent ones, his apostles, to bring heavenly culture to the world. But it's interesting this... This, this word ecclesia that he uses. Lastly, he tells his crew not to tell anyone that he's the Messiah, for he knew that they still had a faulty understanding as to what he means by that, as we're going to see in verse 21. And from then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem, that he would suffer many terrible things in the hands of the elders, the leading priests of the religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. I love this. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him saying, for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind, get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view and not from God's. Wow. This is the same dude he just built up, and he's like, Man, you got it. You see who I am. I'm going to build my church on you. And then 
Five verses later, he's rebuking him, and he's saying, get behind me, get away from me. Your, your perspective is completely wrong. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your own selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. But if you hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll find it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? For the Son of Man will come with his angels in glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. And I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Wow. As far as Peter was concerned, he just outed Jesus as the one true, awaited, long-awaited Messiah. And so their obvious next move would be to sit down and strategize how they're going to actually accomplish this. It's so obvious that their next move would be, in order to take dominion, well, we've got to march on Jerusalem. We've got to pick up some supporters along the way. We've got to say our prayers and maybe fight a surprise battle. Take over the temple, install Jesus as king, and then on to Rome to conquer Caesar. But the way to this kingdom that Jesus describes and demonstrates comes by the exact opposite road to the one the disciples, especially Peter, have in mind. In order for God's kingdom to come and grow and be established, it cannot come from violence or force, but by surrender and sacrifice. Following Him will cost everything. There are no half measures on this journey. It's going to be like learning to swim. Remember, I don't know if you remember young enough learning how to swim. Uh, where I grew up, we had a pool nearby, and, uh, and we had a big swim team in our neighborhood, and it was kind of expected if you were a kid in the neighborhood, you were going to be on the swim team. Of course, it got the kids up at 545 for practice at 6 a.m. Uh, then the normal routine would go, be go back home, have breakfast, watch the prices right, Wait for the adult swim to end by noon, and then you're back at the pool from, eight, or from 12 to 8, and that was every Sunday. But learning how to swim. I remember in kids sometimes do it where they, well, they walk in and they walk towards the deep end until the water gets right here, and then they have to choose. Am I going to step off and learn how to swim, or am I going to just go back and love thinking that the shallow end is really fun. If you keep your foot on the bottom of the pool, you'll never work out how to do it. You have to lose your life to find it. Cling on to your life and you'll never find it. Give everything you've got to following Jesus, including life itself, and you will find it and possess it. It's so powerful. The phrase about the Son of Man coming in His kingdom and the like are not about His second coming. They are about His vindication, following His suffering. They are fulfilled when He rises from the dead and is granted all authority in heaven and on earth. 
And so in other words, Jesus was saying, I'm going to become king, but through a very different way. So Jesus starts to teach on themes from the prophet Isaiah who said that the Messianic king would suffer and die. Read Isaiah 53. This is an amazing chapter that was written 800 years before Jesus walked the earth. How accurate a description this suffering servant would actually have to go through for the sins of his people. And so he's positioning himself as a Messianic king who reigns by becoming a servant and who would lay down his life for Israel and the nations. And it's interesting as we read through, as you read through this section this week, you'll see that time and time and time again, Jesus' disciples, especially Peter, just don't get it. And so Jesus enters this uh, fourth block of teaching. Again, there's five sections in Matthew that we see, and we're entering into this fourth block of teaching from chapter 17 to 20. And these are all about the upside-down nature of Jesus' messianic kingdom, which turns upside down all of our preconceived notions about power, about God's ways, and our value systems. In the community of the servant king, you gain honor by serving others instead of getting revenge. In his kingdom, you forgive and do good even to your enemies. He shares about how gaining true wealth, you gain true wealth by giving away your wealth. And they expected, as we'll see, they, they expected to be rich and famous because they're attached to Jesus. And lastly, in the servant of the community of the servant king, to follow him, you must become a servant yourself. And so in chapter 20, they're on their way back to Jerusalem. He tells them that he will be handed over to the chief priests and be condemned to death. That he will be handed over to the pagans to be tortured and crucified. And on the third day, he would be raised back up. Then, James and John, two of his disciples, have, <laughs> they send their, their mom to Jesus to partition, petition that their, that their sons could be first and second command in his new kingdom. She's vying for positions for her own sons, which you'd think, you know, you try to strategize. It's like, okay, if I'm going to pitch this, What's the best way to pitch it? <laughs> send mom. Like who's, Jesus is going to send no to a Jewish mother. You know, it's like, that just doesn't happen. She's going to press and press and press until it's a yes. So this is a perfect solution. Just send mom. Mom will get us in. So funny, man. It's just, if you read the word just it, and just try to put yourself in it, it's hilarious. So she starts vying for her sons, and they seem to be, you know, Put mom up to ask him. And then, it, and then in chapter 20, verse 24, it says this. When the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. Which is like, well, what? Why were they indignant? It's interesting. That action revealed their own hearts. They were like, dang it, their mom, his mom got fur. They're first. Man, I, I, yesterday I should have asked Jesus. 
I know, but then I had to go get some food, or I had to go to the restroom, and then I forgot to ask him. And then mom came in and took it over. And so they were just, they were all a flutter. But Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world lorded over their people, and the officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first, you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others, and to give his life as a ransom for many. They were so convinced. They were so convinced that he must really be following the sort of plan they had in mind that they simply can't register his repeated warnings that it's all going to be very different. And this request by James and John's mom and Jesus' response opens up a, a whole window for us about the whole sordid business of power. Young politicians try to guess who's going to be powerful. They attach themselves to him or, sir, him or her so that if they've Guessed right, they'll be rewarded handsomely for their allegiance. People play those games all the time. It produces cheap loyalty that's not worth a thing. It produces a hollow friendships that don't go beyond just a smile and a handshake. And it's, it brings easy betrayals when things go wrong. But in Jesus' kingdom, we are called... Not to climb up, but down. If you want to lead, serve. If you want to be first, be last. Jesus is upending everything we understand about power and influence. But yet when we deal with our own selfish ambition and our own dreams about what the future may hold, very rarely do we have pictures flash in our imagination of us getting low and serving. It's all about how do I, you know, position this, and if I could just, you know, massage my boss a little bit, maybe I could get a little 3% bump, you know, in six months, and, and we start vying for how do we gain influence. Hey, I'll, I'll be close to the real you know, type A guy in the office, and then when he gets promoted, maybe I could slide in. We think this way very often, but in Jesus' kingdom, it is not that way. It's about getting low. It's about serving. We're called, they were eager. The disciples were eager to become rich and famous themselves. They were bent on power, position, and prestige. They were becoming the type of people the gospel was meant to overthrow. And as all these warnings Jesus gave time after time, this isn't, your agenda is not my agenda, Peter. My way of doing things is not your way of doing things, Israel. I don't function that way. And my kingdom, this heavenly kingdom, cannot come in the form, again, like I said, through violence or force, it has to come that embodies the culture of the kingdom, which is 
serving, which is laying down our life. For even Jesus didn't come to have servants obey him, but to be a servant and to give his life as a ransom. Now this word ransom, it was very understood in Jewish culture. It was the term by which if someone who was in a in slavery, which their slavery back then, I'm sure there were certain portions of it, but it was more indentured servitude. So you were in debt to someone, or if you wanted to purchase a plot of land for your own, you would work for the owner of that as a slave, as an indentured servant, and you would work off your debt to where it would be finally paid off. But this word ransom, it's the price by which they need to be, the owner needs to be paid what the slave owes, and, it's, and this ransom is paid in full. They are forever free. They are not under any obligation or weight by that debt. And so Jesus' approaching fate would be the payment that would set free all those who are enslaved to sin and all its various idols. When we think, what are we in? Slave to, well, it's very, it's very uh, amorphous or kind of, uh, it's hard to have handles when we kind of talk about, you know, sin. It's like, yeah, we're all messed up, right? But these things that we in our hearts and in our culture, we gravitate to because we look to for our completedness. We look to for our comfort. We look to, to maybe even save us, whether it be a relationship whether it be, man, if I could just have this relationship, man, all will be well. Or if I had this job, because I'm worshiping money, I'm worshiping prestige, I'm worshiping success. It's an idol. And we enslave ourselves into these, under these idols because we are bowing down and worshiping them. But Jesus says, I've paid a ransom for you to be completely set free from any idol that you worship. Sometimes even religion becomes an idol. That if I just do the rules, if I just bow, if I just submit. But it's only Jesus alone that we must bow and be forever set free from these idols. Hopefully forever. And so the question today I want to ask is, are you free? Are you free? Are you actually living the life that Jesus secured as this ransom as he goes to Jerusalem, as he gets crucified and raises from the dead to be vindicated that this kingdom is actually now in effect? Like we said last week, it's under new management and it's God's people in the earth being, being seasoned into communities and cities and nations that God brings heaven to earth. But in order to do that, there has to be this, there has to be this break. There has to be this severing of these idols from our life to say, I can't live that way anymore in order for God to flow through my life. So what comes to mind when I ask, are you free?
what might come up in your imagination. Oh, that might be, that might be one. Well, I don't know why we would live another day once we see that this yoke of slavery to this idol becomes It's interesting the things that we become enslaved to at the beginning are so beautiful. So just wonderful. Oh man, this is great. Like man, I finally feel myself. I'm kind of de-stressed. Being around this person makes me feel whole. Man, this is awesome. But as time goes by, those idols become a dark picture. If I continually look to my wife to be my savior, our relationship gets darker because she wasn't made to be that for me. If I look to my job for my sense of wholeness and man, my worth, my true worth is reflected by my paycheck and wow, man, I, that is a dark road to travel down because what if you let go? What if you let go? What if you get a demotion? Your sense of identity and self can actually crumble because the foundation you've been building your life upon is sand, as we talked about last week. So I just really wanted to kind of camp out on this question. You know, are you free? Is Jesus the one you are allegiance to? Or is it maybe to your own idols that have maybe snatched the affections and passions and calling of your heart calling on your life. And until we see that, until we see that we're locked down, until we see what we are choosing to be held back from, which is the kingdom of God, which is about your gifts and callings and purpose coming alive, that your personality gets made whole, your calling progresses and you grow and your understanding and connection to the God who made you. So I feel like God just wanted us to just spend a little time in prayer. That this would be a time of engagement with God. That you wouldn't just come and hear a shiny head guy speak. (laughs) But that you could actually pause and say, God, where am I today? God, is is this the place in life that you've dreamed of for me? Some would say yes. That's awesome. But for others, we might look and say, wow, there's this idol that's been creeping up in my life. And I've I've been turning to it. I've been relying upon it. So let's pray. Father, God, this morning, I pray that we would present our life to you, our heart to you, our hurt, our betrayals, our misunderstandings. God, the things in our life, God, you sent your only son that whoever believes in him will experience eternal life. That word eternal is infinite 
life and it can begin today. Father, we play so many games with ourselves. We, we fool ourselves. We, we, we present a certain face to the public, but God, internally and in private, God, it's a much different matter. And so, Father, I pray that if there's any idol that we're serving, any ambition that we're bowing down to for our own self, for our own sense of identity, God, I pray that we would lay that at the foot of the cross this morning. God, set us free from that. God, we've been not made to live under that yoke of slavery, but God, you paid a ransom for our life that we were when we were in debt, when we were under sin, when we've been living just wickedness. Father, you came and paid a ransom. I've paid that price. You can now be set free, but Father, you wait for us in your brilliant sovereignty to see you for who you really are. As Peter did, you're the Christ You're the Messiah. You're the long-awaited, righteous, anointed king that God can bring heaven to earth. And God, we want to be your people in this generation. God, we look around and we see the confusion. We see the lack of truth. We see just this side and that side. Father, may it not be for us. May we be your kingdom people and bring your kingdom through surrender. And may we sacrifice our life so that people may see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. Father, it's about you. So Lord, whatever these idols are, just imagine you handing them to Jesus. And you just say, God, I repent of this idol. God, I repent of being under this cloud, or this fog of confusion, this fog of my own ambition or my own pride. God, I hand this to you. Please take it. And Father, in exchange, I pray that you would give us your life. Give us your, this infinite life as we lose ours. God, you would, in its place, give us your Holy Spirit, pack power life. This is where transformation takes place, right here. It's where we see this exchange, this divine exchange. So Father, Lord, if there's any of us here that maybe have never even given our allegiance to you in the first place, we've heard about these idols and you think, yeah, I want to exchange that for Jesus. Man, Jesus seems so much cleaner, so much more whole and that He's a God that I see as the one that had compassion on the least of these. That's the God I want to serve. But God, if we've never given our allegiance to you, God, I pray that today we would decide forevermore. Father, we may be a mess, but God, we give our allegiance to you. And if that's you, and if you've never given your allegiance to him, I pray that you would do that right now in your heart. Jesus, I give my allegiance to you. Teach me what it means to be a follower of you. Help me follow Jesus. Not a religious form, but Jesus himself. And for those of you that mean that in your heart, it's 
today is a brand new day. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here, that God, you would bless them. God, that you would fill them right now in the name of Jesus. Father, may we be your people. And may we not coast in our walk with you, but be refreshed and enlivened by Jesus. Amen. Amen. Sorry for the long prayer on that. Hopefully you were able to travel down that road. It's a little longer than expected, but travel down that road with me. Um, if that was maybe you for the first time and you thought, man, I've, I've never given my whole allegiance to Jesus, I pray that you would tell someone. Share that. Get it out. Because a lot of times we'll play games in our head and we'll say, man, I'm good. I just don't want to tell anybody. Man, you'll drown. Learning how to swim helps take a coach that can come alongside of you and say, all right, kick here, stroke here, breathe here, make sure you breathe. But in our life, we all need coaches. And that's our desire here at City Life is that it wouldn't be just some show, but that this could be a place where you could learn to swim in the kingdom. Amen? Well, we hope this message has inspired you and challenged you to be the man or woman he's called you to be now and to see his kingdom grow in every area and arena of life. God is with you more than you know. For more information about our community here in Kansas City, please visit us online at citylifekc.org and we'll see you next time on the City Life Podcast.